live from the Friars Club in New York City. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. Hi, this is Bob. No, no, I, I can't do that. <laughs> this is, uh, I got a new audio box and I was just showing off for the guys. Uh, why don't we do this? Well, let's do this for real. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode 36. Guys, I got two possible titles for this. I'm going to need your help choosing one. The first is our least downloaded episode, <laughs> or we spit on Lester Cowan. <laughs> you guys got a preference? Oh, those are both good. They're both good. I, I, I lean towards Mr. Cowan. All Me right. too. That, that's what it will be. <laughs> Hi again, and welcome to all those brave enough to join us for this one. Uh, this is Bob Gassell, and as always, I'm joined by the dynamic duo of Matthew Conium and Noah Diamond. How you doing today, gentlemen? Gee whiz, we feel like kids on a merry-go-round. I'm here for the Love Actually podcast. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of which, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of calling an audible on this Love Happy podcast, by the way, because I saw Jaws for the first time over the weekend, and I'm much more into talking about that if you guys are game. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, actually, I'm checking the paperwork here. And that's a no-go because we signed the contract. We have to talk about Love Happy. We're committed to it. So we're going to see this through. So here we go. Uh, maybe one day we'll do a Jaws podcast if I could ever find the Mark's tie-in. Um, we could do a Joy's podcast if you really want to. Oh, yeah. There we go. There that was go. it. That's the tie-in. Uh, okay. All joking aside, which I guess could have been the title of uh, this film. <laughs> You know, there's two schools of thought uh, regarding Love Happy, which uh, is the Marxist final starring vehicle from uh, 1949. First of all, many people consider it the worst film the Marx Brothers ever made, while others quite like it. And you know what? There's no reason both of those things can't be true. And I think that's going to be the theme of our uh, show today. Yeah, there are a number of problems and missteps, but there's also a lot to cherish. And I think the number one takeaway I get from scouring the internet and looking at people talking about the film is that most seem to enjoy it more than they expect to, uh, given its reputation. Now, before we dive into it, why don't we get a little background on how the film evolved from what it was originally conceived as to what it ended up actually being. And for that, let's jump across the pond to Matthew Conium. <laughs> right. Okay. And I'm going to take you back to A Night in Casablanca as our start point because that film uh, obviously brought the Marx Brothers back as a single unit for the first time in five years. Uh, it was pitched to independent producers by Gummo. Uh, David Lowe was the one that bought it. And for particularly for its, for its uh, cost-to-profit ratio, in terms of its cost-to-profit ratio, it did extremely well. It was a very, very commercially successful film. So Lester Cowan, another independent producer, uh, presumably saw the, uh, the, the profits on that and thought, I'd, I'd like to get some of that too. So he then went to the team and said, would you like to do a film for me? Unfortunately, though, three things had happened, all of them involving Groucho. Firstly, 
he hadn't enjoyed making A Night in Casablanca. Secondly, he was very, very disappointed with the finished product for some reason. He, he felt that, that uh, Archie Mayo had ruined it and the, the, uh, the raw footage was much better. And then thirdly, he finally got a solo film. He got Copacabana. He got the one thing that he hadn't managed to do in all of that five years. So Groucho immediately pulled the plug again on any possibility of uh, future uh, Marx Brothers movies. Lester Cowan uh, seems to have been a man who 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 didn't know the meaning of defeat, um, and he appears to have gone to them individually and said, "Would you like to do a film with me?" And Groucho said no, and Harpo said no, and Chico said yes. So. Chico uh, seems to have been the first person signed to the project that became Love Happy, which is which is important because what you always hear about Love Happy is it was supposed to be a solo Harpo film, but Chico needed the money, so Chico was roped in as well. And that's not quite what happened. It's based on an idea. It's based on a script that was intended to be a solo Harpo vehicle that Harpo had been working on with Ben Hecht and that went back to at least 1943 or possibly earlier and was never going to see production. So what must have happened I think is that Cowan then went back to Harpo and said look I've got I've got Chico on board are you sure you won't reconsider and Harpo saw an opportunity to make uh, a compromised version of the idea he had but probably his only chance to get it mounted at all. So he then uh said yes to Cowan um, right from the start for a film that was going to star him and Chico. Um, It then went into production under various names, um, but Cowan, I think, all the time was was manoeuvring behind Harpo's back because what he wanted really, the only thing he wanted, was a Marx Brothers film. And he eventually roped Groucho in by offering him a, a, a very nice bit of salary that Groucho had to sue for and didn't get until 1951. Um, and the promise to Harpo, as much as to Groucho, that he would only be doing uh, narration. He then reneged on that and got Groucho to do a few little uh, on-camera appearances as well, which infuriated Harpo and set Harpo against Cowan. Uh, and that's how they ended up with this bizarre project uh, showcasing Harpo, but with the other two hanging around the edges as well. And Harpo's fury, of course, is where we got the title of this episode because of his supposed threat to spit on Lester Cowan. But anyhow, like room service, they just couldn't commit to what they wanted here. You know, it wasn't a Marx Brothers film. It wasn't a Harpo solo film. It wasn't even a Harpo Chico duo film, which I guess it could have been. You know, they just tried to appeal to everybody and make everyone happy and ended up making no one happy. It's really very cynical on the producer's part, I I think, because what they really seem to have wanted is the right to refer to it as a Marx Brothers movie, to to put the phrase, the Marx Brothers, above the title. They knew that what they were going to wind up with wasn't going to be a real Marx Brothers movie in any other sense. It's barely more of a Marx Brothers movie than the story of mankind is. Mm. And funnily enough, actually, they were... Cowan was forbidden from using the, the phrase the Marx Brothers in the titles. He uh, The arrangement he struck with Harpo was that they, they were allowed to, to use the phrase the Marx Brothers on the posters, but on the credits it had to say starring Harpo Marx with Groucho at the bottom of the cast list like, like it is in, in the end credits. But that credit at the mm-hmm. start, which comes up saying starring the Marx Brothers, was explicitly forbidden 
under the terms of their contract. But I, I guess by that point, nobody cared enough to, to bother to quibble. You know, had it been billed as just a film starring Harpo Marx uh, with Chico and Groucho in support, we wouldn't be here comparing it to Duck Soup or, you know, A Night at the Opera. We'd be comparing it to Copacabana, you know, as, as a, a Marx solo project as opposed to a, one of the team films. Mm, mm. Now, I think we need to discuss the validity of even having Harpo as the lead in a movie. You know, I think the Harpo that most of us like best doesn't really care about things and plot lines and most people. So, you know, it's just inherently, you know, a conflict of putting him in the center of a film. Um, he, he's an unsympathetic character and every attempt to make him sympathetic, you know, it brings him down as we learned, uh, you know, when Thalper got a hold of him at MGM. Um, you know, we've heard that people got in Harpo's ear over the years and said, you could be the next chaplain. And obviously, this is the uh, attempt to go in that direction. And while I think, you know, maybe a Harpo film was worth exploring, it's not as easy to do as just taking the Harpo that we all know and putting them, you know, in the lead. I think the Harpo here is a is a hybrid too, actually. I think when he yeah. gets zany in this film, he does get Paramount yeah. zany. Uh, he does do things that Thalberg wouldn't have allowed, but but poured right. over the whole thing is this syrup of uh, of sentiment. Yeah, there he isn't. I mean, the idea of making Harpo the protagonist of a film in the mold of Chaplin, it, it seems like it might have been a vaguely good idea. But it, he's such a different kind of performer, not just from Chaplin, but as we've discussed in the past, from all the silent comedians. I mean, Chaplin had, um, he, he radiated pathos and you, you felt for him instantly. He also had a balletic deftness that just made him watchable even when he wasn't doing much. Um, I, I don't think Harpo is a less great performer mm. than Chaplin, but he just mm. has a different toolbox and, yeah, yeah. Chaplin represented the everyman, which was, you know, the mm -hmm. exact opposite of what yes. Harpo was all about. Yeah, this Harpo is an uneasy mix of the old anarchy from the Paramount and Broadway and vaudeville days and this new idea of making him a sort of elfin, cute, sympathetic aide to the protagonists. Um, thumbing through the Marx Brothers encyclopedia here, I see that the uh, director, uh, David Miller, uh, was proposing... Uh, taking this out on tour for a road show. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, what they could have done on tour. Uh, obviously, would have just been Harpo. I guess Chico would have gone along. But uh, I guess they would have done the charade scene. Uh, I don't know what else they could have done. Probably the best version of an imaginable love-happy road show would be the personal appearances Marilyn Monroe made around the country to promote it. <laughs> now, last thing before we start, uh, there are two edits of this film in release uh, now. And actually, I had told everybody in our Facebook group that they had to watch both of them to uh, be ready for this podcast. But I was just kidding, folks. You really didn't have to do that. <laughs> but Matthew, why, why don't you just go ahead and tell everybody why there are two versions and wh what the story is there? Yes, there, there, there are the two versions. There's a, a, a shorter one and a longer one, and they differ by... Two versions? What? <laughs> oh, shorter one and a longer one, and they differ by about, I think it's about five or six minutes. Um, the, yeah. the thing that has the power to confuse people who, who, who come to them uh, is the fact that the, the shorter one 
is the the kind of the official version and that the things that have been cut out of it are not things in the main that are irrelevant or surplus to requirements and uh, uh, have been done to tighten the film up but they're the the very things that the film could do with a whole lot more of primarily uh groucho there's quite a bit of groucho stuff missing from the shorter version including probably the best Groucho bits in the film, uh, which isn't, you know, saying a whole lot. But, you know, there's some very pleasant Groucho stuff that's missing. And the reason for that is that Groucho's appearances were rationed um, by a contractual decree, very much at the wish uh, of Harpo, but also Groucho himself, who who had no desire at all to 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 swamp the film. He didn't want to be in the film at all. In fact, uh, so Harpo and Groucho um, carefully rationed in the contract how long his appearances could be. The rooftop chase was a late afterthought uh, and bringing Groucho into that was a later afterthought still uh, and what happened is on that longer version which is the version that that first premiered um, there was just too much too much Groucho in it contractually too much Groucho so uh, various changes were made to make it uh, fall into line uh, which meant that some of Groucho's narration has been removed some of his on-camera appearances have been removed and a few other bits and pieces as well. And while we're talking about Groucho's appearances, I guess we should mention Groucho's appearance uh, as he wears a real mustache for the first time in a film. Although people might think he did in Copacabana, but nope, that was a fake. That was glued on. Um, I think Groucho grew the mustache to help promote You Bet Your Life, which I think was just a radio show at this point, but he still needed a mustache to promote the show. Um, do we know why he didn't, like, you know, wear the grease paint over the real mustache? He, he ended up doing that a few times in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think it's as much a, a much as much a gesture as anything, isn't it? I think it, I think it's him, you know, putting his foot down and saying, uh, "This isn't the Marx Brothers." And you know. right, it's almost as if he's appearing as Groucho Marx's solo comedian as opposed to one of the Marx Brothers. Mm. Okay, I guess it's time we start talking about the actual film. <laughs> We've put this off as long as possible. Um, we're going to talk about the long version. It's much better quality visually and everything. Uh, this is the one uh, that's by Olive Garden or Olive Films or whatever. Yeah, you get unlimited breadsticks with that movie. <laughs> and uh, I don't know about you guys. I was confused right off the bat. We hear a police whistle, and then there's just like this beeping going on. I, I thought I was watching an RKO film or something. Only in the long version, yeah. In the short version, you get you just get the whistle, yeah. And in the long one, you get this beep 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 beep, beep, beep which I I've no idea what it's meant to be. Any fans out there ever f- figure it out with in Morse code what it might say? <laughs> <laughs> and right away, uh, we meet Groucho, who talks directly to camera, setting up the uh, situation, uh, telling a few uh, fair jokes. Right from the start, it's baddies. He's reading. You can see he's reading the, the lines. Uh, yeah. He he's his timing is wrong. He 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 ruins one of the few you know vaguely uh, good jokes. Um, you'll notice even my business card has nothing on it by taking that long pause mm. between card and uh, has nothing mm. on it. 
Um, and then the, when he says uh, the Royal Romanov diamonds are missing, uh, that, that, that fade-in of the diamonds is meant to happen straight away, but it doesn't. And you, yeah. uh, and you see him gurning for about five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> really strange dissolves. Yeah, mm, it just yeah. fades in and out like yeah. a bad dream. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but as you point out, Matthew, the material is actually not terrible. I mean, mm. it's not great, but it's rare to have something this bad and have the material not be the problem. Mm. And as Groucho finishes his setup, he basically introduces the Love Happy song. Love happy, I'm love happy. It's wonderful to know the meaning of happy. And if I do, so because of you, we So uh, what do you think of this ditty? I think it's suspiciously good. That's what I think, because this what are you is, implying? I'm implying. Well, this is a project that that from from when it was first announced had various names: uh, Sidewalks of New York, the Sidewalk, Diamonds on the Sidewalk, Diamonds in the Basement, Hearts and Diamonds, Blondes Up, My Blonde Heaven, and many, many more. Uh, now, for <laughs> some the reason, yeah, for some <laughs> sardine mystery, for some reason. Uh, it suddenly changes to the mysterious title Love Happy, and we even have Groucho saying, what do you think they called the show? Love Happy. But it's not true, because we can see a poster for the show later on, and it's called Hearts and Diamonds. So what I think happened is Anne Ronell, our songwriter and wife of Lester Cowan, had a song lying around called Love Happy, and the cart came before the horse. I think the, the title of the film was changed just to use that song. But it is a nice song. Ah, yeah, yeah. And we see along the way that Harpo is credited with a story credit. Is that the first time one of the Marxes is credited for anything other than performing in one of their films? Yeah. Yeah, it would be. I guess so. Apparently, the original concept came from uh, Ben Hecht, who uh, wisely had his name taken off the film. (laughs) (laughs) Ben Hecht and Charlie MacArthur became friends with the Marx Brothers in 1923, when I'll Say She Is was in Chicago on its way to New York, they were the first members of the Algonquin set that the Marx Brothers met. That was before they got to Broadway. And that is interesting. In fact, later in the film, there's what seems like it could only be a reference to I'll Say She Is, that Mm -hmm. nobody who hadn't seen it could possibly have interpreted as a reference. And I I don't know um, if Hecht got to the point of contributing material that specific, but that's what I found that's interesting in this movie. And some may be surprised to see the name Mary Pickford in the credits as one of the executive producers. I guess uh, United Artists was involved at some point in the uh, pre-production for this, but uh, like many others, she did not see eye to eye with uh, Mr. Cowan and they parted ways. And also had asked to have her name taken off the credits as well, but, but didn't. Mm. <laughs> Didn't get her wish. Cowan did what he wanted with these opening credits, huh? I mean, come on. We're not even a minute into this film, and we've already got like three controversies with the thing. Jeez. Anyhow, Groucho uh, finishes telling us uh, the setup and introduces us to the romantic leads and other sundry characters. We meet Mike Johnson, although I think uh, he should have used his real name, the performer, Paul Valentine. If that's not a name for a Marx Brothers romantic lead, I don't know what is. Anyhow, Mike's dancing around as we hear that the show is underfinanced. Where have we heard that uh, before? Room service, perhaps? Anyhow, the show needs financing or it's going to shut down. 
You know, they, they can't even feed their performers. So we see that the guy who's getting them their food, oh my God, it's Harpo Marx. He's in front of a you know, a little grocery store and he's pickpocketing people and grabbing some of their food. But note that it's people who are very well off. So I guess we're not supposed to feel so bad. I guess he's sort of a Robin Hood character here, huh? And there's another oddity here, isn't there? Because Groucho says Gimbal's Basement. Gimbal's is a real real shop, isn't it? But the but we, yes. we we can see that this this place is actually called Herbert and Herbert. So I wonder if Gimbal's didn't throw in a few quid like the people in the in the uh, roof chase at the end as well to get that line. And I think you mentioned this in your book, Matthew, that, you know, unlike in A Night in Casablanca, it's okay for him to be pickpocketing and doing the petty theft again. Yeah. Yeah. And he does that lovely gookie and, and frightens the dog. Sounds like the authorities have caught on that we're talking about this film. <laughs> <laughs> Harpo's performance is fine here, but as with some parts of The Big Store and Night in Casablanca, uh, the musical scoring for me uh, hurts this sequence quite a bit. Harpo's doing some great stuff, but the music is just thundering on the soundtrack and just insisting at every moment that we be delighted. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, you had said when we were talking about A Night in Casablanca that uh, nobody told the composer that he was working on a comedy. I think there's a bit of a yeah, overcorrection right. going on here. Yes, yeah. So a car pulls up and out comes our villainess, the sultry Madame Igelici. And uh, she's uh, accompanied by a couple of thugs, uh, one of which is uh, played by the inimitable Raymond Burr and uh, some other guy. <laughs> <laughs> some other guy. I remember him from some other movie. They're meant to be brothers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So we learn that the Madame is hot on the trail of uh, these Romanoff diamonds, which are worth, believe it or not, $1 million. <laughs> they appear to be packed with some sardines. And coincidentally, Harpo ends up on a lift taking a bunch of food, uh, including sardines, back down to the uh, bottom of the store. He's avoiding the police, so he hides on the lift. And once down there, uh, Madame's assistant or the store manager, I don't know who this guy is, Throckmorton. Throckmorton. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to him later. He's, you know, frantically searching through the, uh, through the cans of sardines, you know, flinging the ones that aren't good. He's, he's flinging them here and there and Harpo's catching them in his jacket. Uh, although they do use this fast motion effect, which is really not needed, not necessary. Harpo is inventive and clever enough. Uh, we don't need fast motion to make him funnier. Well, it worked so well in Go West. And eventually Throckmorton finds the special can with the uh, jewels. It's got a, some sort of pseudo-Nazi mark on it. He makes love to it, kisses it, and sticks it in his pocket. And is on his way out. And Harpo reaches into his pocket and grabs it away. And when he realizes a moment later that his sardines are gone, he comes back in. And Harpo slips in another can, uh, which pacifies him. Although when you think about it, there was no reason Harpo couldn't have slipped back the original can of sardines. He had no way of knowing that this marked can was any more special than any of the others. Yeah, don't you think the? I mean, it, it gets a little silly to pick apart the logic yeah. of these things, but I, I mean, <laughs> the one with the necklace in it. That's what we're here for. <laughs> it, it must be so much heavier than the one that just has sardines in it. It must be noticeably yeah. different to hold that in your hand. Also, how were the how was the necklace put into this can? We we learn later that the can still has sardines in it. Yeah. So, 
it was somehow opened, the necklace was put in it, and then it was resealed. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Maybe Madame was married to one of the guys in the uh, sardine cannery. <laughs> I mean, you know, she says that she had to marry like eight guys to get to this point in the plot that we're never really told why. So right. I guess that's as good a guess as any. She maybe have other reasons for wanting to do that. <laughs> and sardines are unnecessarily disgusting, aren't they? I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too prissy, but <laughs> I've always they thought could, so. Yes. They, they could have baked, you know, stuck it inside a loaf of bread, you know, baked, put it in dough and baked it or something. The idea of them opening all these cans of fish and you see them dumping them into ashtrays and things. I just think, what, what must that smell like, you know, in a New York summer? <laughs> <laughs> and before we leave Throckmorton, we should point out that apparently he has X-ray vision because when he comes across yes. the can with the label on it, he's able to see right through it like Superman on the old uh, TV series. So Throckmorton, who has the wrong can in his pocket, uh, runs up to uh, Madame Galici and tells her he's got the jewels and she is thrilled and grateful and he hands her the can and she's loving it. And then she looks closely in and realizes, oh, this is not the can. It doesn't have the special adhesive paint yes. <laughs> that a lifetime of rubbing uh, cannot get rid of. Yeah. Not the kind of paint that just drips off as soon as you paint it on. <laughs> A lifetime of rubbing would not remove it. (laughs) So obviously, Madame is not happy by this turn of events. So she sends her two thugs to take care of Throckmorton. They tear into him. Yeah. I mean that literally. Now now listen to this. What did they do? Rip his pants? (laughs) I don't know what that was. I think they were showing him a rough cut of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And to top it all off, when Madame finally says, okay, that's enough, uh, bring him on over, he doesn't seem too much the worse for wear. He basically straightens himself up and walks on over like like he's in a Three Stooges film or something. (laughs) Were they thinking, like looking at the old Thalberg formula and saying, well, there's, we can't, I don't see a way to have the villain sadistically torture Harpo early in this film, but somebody's got to get tortured. (laughs) How about lefty Throckmorton? (laughs) So back to Harpo at the market. He's finishing up there and he's headed back to the theater with all the food. But I I don't like something about this. You know, his jacket is just totally packed to the brim. It's got big bulges in it. And that's not the way we ever, ever seen Harpo's jacket before. No matter what he's had in there, it's just, you know, we can never tell what he's got by the capacity of his jacket. Here, it seems like it has a, you know, a finite capacity and it's full. I, I completely agree with that. And throughout this film, there are gags around the capacity of Harpo's coat that might have mm-hmm. worked. But yes, mm-hmm. all the magic is drained out of it by the sight of a man in a gigantic stuffed coat. <laughs> yeah. So finally, we meet uh, Chico, who comes strolling into the theater. And uh, believe it or not, the uh, normal cut of the film, the one that was in circulation for decades and decades, does not have the Groucho uh, voiceover introduction uh, basically telling us who this character is. So actually, why don't we just play that right now? Here's another Broadway hopeful, Faustino the Great. For 20 years, he was an organ grinder with a monkey. Then one day, the monkey went on strike. He wanted shorter hours and longer bananas. Now Faustino is a mind reader, if he only had a mind. Now that's obviously was cut because there was too much grouch, not because they thought the material wasn't good enough, yeah. right? Yeah, because that, that bit of 
film is still there, isn't it? Of Jacob walking on. Yeah. We just don't get to hear. So yeah. So no, no time has been saved or anything. So yeah, it must have been just a, a some uh, some harpo placating. And when Chico is introduced as a mind reader, you're thinking, God, this is the most fraudulent uh, profession ever for the most fraudulent character ever. But actually, he actually seems to have a talent uh, for it, uh, at least when it comes to Harpo. One of the bits that I do find genuinely funny is when when he auditions as a mind reader uh, and says, you're thinking about something, which is a, you know, which is a joke, you know, because obviously thinking about something. But then he says, what? And he says, a, a, a nice juicy steak with French fried potatoes. And, and uh, what's he called? Mike Johnson kind of just walks away in disgust. So, so Jacob's just guessed. <laughs> Jacob should have said, oh, wait a minute. That's what I'm thinking about. Never mind. Mm. You know? Yeah. You wait for a more coherent joke to come and it, and it, it never does. Right. And then we meet one of the more interesting characters in this film is Mr. Lyons. Uh, now, what is he? Who is he exactly? He's. I think he represents the backer, doesn't he? He's a. He's. He keeps threatening to take away the props and the sets and everything, but it's never really made clear exactly what his position is or his authority. Yeah, did did he pay for that stuff, or did, is he from the company that rented that stuff to them? It, it seems like it has to be the former because of other things that are said. <laughs> I really like this character. He almost feels like he uh, wandered in from another movie. He has a interesting demeanor and a way of talking. I like the way he says, as of now, yes. a few times. I mean, I guess he could have come out of room service, actually. The situation is either Mr. Yorkman or $1,100, or I move the stuff off the stage. As of now. He's pretty good. Leon Belasco. Mm. Uh, no relation, mm. apparently, to the legendary producer David Belasco, who was roughly his contemporary. Leon Belasco was born Leonid Simeonovich Berladsky in Odessa in 1902. Ah, and that's just off the top of your head? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always known that. <laughs> he's pretty good, and he's been in dozens of films, uh, this guy, Belasco, from 1938 to 1976. 76? Wow. So, uh, Chico... Uh saves the day by convincing Lyons that uh, the backer is still in on the show. And uh, that gets Lyons off their back. And Chico is now endeared to the cast and crew. And he tries to parlay that into a job. And although they can't pay him, they're glad they have him on board. Although I'm not sure what they're going to do with a mind reader. Why didn't he say he was a pianist? When, when he when he first tried to get a job in the show, why didn't he say he was a pianist? Because the show needs a mind reader. Yeah. <laughs> then finally, uh, 20 minutes into the film and, and like 30 minutes into this podcast, uh, we get two Marx Brothers on screen together at the same time as Harpo and Chico meet up. Hello, Harpo. You got a something for me? You want I should read your mind again? All right, I'll start thinking. You're thinking of the same thing you thought about yesterday and of the day before. That's the only thought you got, huh? And I find it a bit disconcerting, actually, that Harpo is using his uh, real name while his real stage name here, because, you know, to me, Harpo Marx is the performer, not the character. It's interesting because um, it, nominally he was also called Harpo in Coconuts and Monkey Business, but he's never referred to as Harpo within yeah. the film. There's something about it that I, I find off-putting, but I don't know if I would feel that way if, if the film were less off-putting in general. It does mm. seem to say something that, you know, Chico and Groucho are working under character names. And so it maybe it 
emphasizes the idea that it, on some level it's still a Harpo vehicle. And how do we feel about the uh, 60-year-old Harpo uh, ogling uh, Maggie, who seems to be about 25? Well, he's had a facelift, hasn't he? Oh, that makes it okay then. <laughs> In fairness to the man, his his skin is very, very tight, isn't it? Compared to uh, a night in Casablanca, where he was he was quite lined. He's he's very, very yeah. tight tight skinned here. So I think he has had a, a little bit of uh, cosmetic surgery. Because the script casts him in this um, acute assistant kind of position, it never really seems like he has any lecherous intentions toward uh, Aloe Vera. Is that her name? Vera Allen? Um, <laughs> you know, and later on when they have their scene together in the park, it's so, you know, he's kind of avuncular toward her. You know, there just isn't any hint of sexual menace. Uh, like Chico, he's not interested in sex or money. These guys are just... Keep it away from me. <laughs> I know one of sardines. You promised me something special. Hmm. Ice cream. Tootsie Fruitsie ice cream. That Tootsie Fritzy reference is a little bit interesting. I, I think cumulatively, this film has a surprising number of those callbacks and little nods at the past. Yeah. In fact, as Matthew mentions in his book, uh, there were a few of these in A Night Casablanca that might have been accidental, but this seems to be, you know, definitely intentional, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think it was your book, right, Matthew? Am I, or am I uh, quoting the wrong guy here? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> what I, sorry, I'm, I'm slightly distracted because what I'm doing is I'm going through uh, what I've got of the earlier scripts and things to see if he's called Harpo in them. And... It looks like he is. Um, I'm looking at Ben Heck's treatment here. Um, and yeah, it looks like he, he was always called Harpo, the character. And people refer to him by name. You know, he was Harpo in those other films, but nobody ever called him. That's, that. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And even in the films where he, they, Marx Brothers all have character names, the scripts generally still identify them as Groucho. That is Harpo. also true, yeah. Yeah. Okay, next on tap, we got uh, Marion Hutton uh, uh, serenading us with uh, Who Stole That Jam? Which is not an original, is it? I didn't realize that. It's not? Um, no, it, it's, it's an older song. I, I think Nick Santa Maria told me that. Oh, oh well, Nick would probably know. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, I didn't dig very deeply, but um, every reference I could find to this song uh, said it was by Marion Hutton, so that's how helpful the internet is sometimes. <laughs> Mama wants to know who stole that jam, who's been in her nice clean kitchen, who stole that jam? Was it little Tom or Sue or Mabel, who snuck it off the table, even ate the label? Mama wants to know who made this mess? Mama's gonna kick some teeth in if you don't confess. Mama wasn't looking where that stuff was tooken. None of you had better scram, who stole that jam? Again, as with the opening number, you know, my note on the song is not terrible. Hmm. No. And if you're paying close attention here, and I don't know why you would, you might notice that she's improvising the lyrics, uh, at least the character is at the end, because I don't think those would be the actual <laughs> song lyrics uh, for the show. I don't want that lollipop, yeah. And for some reason, Harper was scared off and <laughs> by her forwardness and <laughs> takes off and encounters a cop and then we get the famous gag with uh 
Harpo uh, knocking over the row of seats and the rest of the rows going down like dominoes. Also known as the funny bit. <laughs> Although, to be honest, I don't like the idea of Harpo doing something inadvertently mm. by accident. I like him doing things on purpose. It's a successfully executed bit. Okay, so we cut up to uh, Madame Iglici's uh, suite or lair or wherever she's staying, and uh, the police are bringing up uh, uh, assorted bums they've caught to see if they're the ones with the uh, sardines or know where they are. And uh, uh, the first one looks like Marty Allen, and he doesn't know. But eventually they bring in Harpo, and he's left there. And next thing we know, we're into our infamous whammy scene. Uh, it's very strange. There's weird music going on, and there's cleavage, and you know, I'm sure it'll look very good on paper, but I don't know if the director uh, pulls this one off. It's 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 weird. It's a memorable phrase. It's also got that the weird um, shadow, isn't it, over her over her chest to tone its its uh, shocking effect down a little. But it's never made quite clear exactly what the whammy is. I mean, is he supposed to be hypnotized because she's staring at him or she's thrusting out her chest? I mean, if that's the case, this film should have been in 3D. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I suppose, yes, they, she can put people under her spell by sort of mugging moodily at them. I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I could imagine a version of that idea working in a film, but uh, Not boy, one. it doesn't here. The memorable yeah. phrase, though, she's giving him the whammy. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that'll keep yeah. you up at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it works on Harpo because he seems to be totally under her spell. I like the bit where he's leaning forward. That that that's very well done. And and the business with his arm swinging where she stops one and he moves the other, that's, you know, that's vague, yeah. vaguely in the territory we want, we want him to be in, isn't it? And now that he's under her spell, she sends her thugs in to search Harpo and they uh, go through his jacket, uh, start pulling things out. Uh, this is pretty good. What do we got coming out of his jacket? Well, the, the oft-remarked in-joke is the mailbox that's pulled out of Harpo's coat, uh, right? Mm. The name on the mailbox is Moss Kaufman which is, of course, uh, a hybrid of Kaufman and Hart's. Uh, you know, it's sort of a reminder that the Marx Brothers have a connection to the world of Kaufman and Hart and Broadway playwriting, and it's a nod in the direction of some of their friends. But it's also kind of a sad reminder, because in yeah. itself, it's not a particularly funny joke. And yeah. what we're seeing in this film feels so many miles away from yeah. the world of Kaufman and Hart. It's almost like a distress call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a bat signal. <laughs> yes. Send jokes immediately. <laughs> well, yeah. So we also get a nice block of ice, obviously mm. left over from horse yeah. feathers. There's a, a lit spinning barber pole, a live dog, all sorts of things. There's some fun stuff here. Obviously, mm. this is offset because we see how it's being done. We're obviously pulling things through the mm. wall. Yeah. And now, for the first time in about uh, 25 minutes, we actually see Groucho again. I mean, this is like a Zeppo-type length between appearances for him here. Um, actually, in the you know the normal-length version of the film, he's only on for a brief moment, uh, segueing us to another scene. But in the new, longer, uh, extended cut, uh, we actually get a nice scene with him recounting his backstory with Madame Igalici, showing some photos of their uh, history together. It's 
It's actually some funny stuff. I think it really affects the quality of the film when it's not there. And there's those lovely snapshot photos, aren't That's they? Which which they obviously did actually yeah. take. They're not. Um, they haven't just stuck their heads on. On you know, uh, they they really did spend an afternoon taking those. I think. And there's a nice bit with uh, Groucho describing how Chico is uh, trying to bribe wines with uh, showgirls. Yeah. And now uh, we get an, we get another number. We get the dance number, the Sadie Thompson uh, dance number, which which is it's it's entertaining. It's very modern looking. Now you have to realize. It, this is 1949. It's 20 years since uh, the Monkey Doodle Doo. It's halfway between Monkey Doodle Doo and Woodstock. And so this is where we are in, in pop culture. Okay. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's it's not... Um, it's... Uh, oh, no, I help. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of what, what we've... What we've called Moss Kaufman to help... It seems like what we've said about the other songs, it's it's a little surprising, maybe, that the musical numbers are not one of the big problems with this film. You know, I, I, oddly, if the songs were much, much worse, I don't think our overall feelings about the film would be any different. Uh, but, you know, minute for minute, the musical numbers are kind of okay here. And we should note that although there are romantic leads, there is not an actual love song between the two of them in this film. Yeah, he's a little bit of a wet noodle, isn't he? I mean, it's absolutely. Uh, oh god! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Vera Vera Ellen is a is an excellent performer. Um, she may not be at her most powerful here, but in other films, she's quite a powerhouse. Um, but he's a he, I don't know if we really want to see him s- singing to her like Alan Jones. You know? No. <laughs> so Harpo is not indicated where the can of sardines is so they're they are going to torture him they are going to make mm. him smoke rope the smoking rope is that an actual thing that people do is that a torture have you ever heard of it outside of this film uh i hadn't until recently i think somebody mentioned it in the in the facebook group a little while ago and, and it is i think smoking a rope it is isn't a thing. like a slang term for a cheap cigar it is i think yes and so that would make it a visual pun, like cut the cards, you know, he's actually smoking a rope, but using it as a form mm. of torture doesn't quite mm. make sense to me. And the scene goes on about twice as long in the uh, longer version mm. than in the original. That, this is one of the few, I think, cut, cuts that are done, you know, for the for yeah. the purposes of, of the actual integrity of the film, isn't it? They, they, they trim out a lot of this awful torture stuff. And they spin him on a wheel, they put him in a washing machine. By the time he's got that horrible wet wig, and he really, yeah. he does look like like a homeless person, he, like a, a drug addict that they that they picked up yeah. off the street. Uh, he he looks too convincingly demented, I think, for for either humour or pathos or anything else that that we traditionally group under the uh, catch-all entertainment. And to top it all off, they do this food and water torture which seems to be dripping water on him while he watches an egg fry. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? But, uh, you know, in the original version of the film, that washing machine stuff isn't in there. So when Harpo was wet, I thought it was because of the water torture that's mm. going on here. But actually, it was because of the uh, uh, washing machine, which we don't see until this new version of the of the film. 
And also, Raymond Burr has got a torturer's outfit on, hasn't he? That he that he suddenly he he's wearing like a kind of yeah. a, a kimono with with sort of a skull. Yeah. Looks like a skull and crossbones or something on it. So that's also and, and he's having a good old time. He can't keep a straight face while he's torturing. <laughs> that's what he puts on when he when <laughs> he does his tortures. And I guess this food and water torture is working because Harpo is really hungry. I mean, listen to the sound effect they use. Squealing cat. Another odd sound choice to go with the whammy. Seeing that shot of Harpo in the washing machine, I couldn't help but think of him in the Coke machine mm. in that candid camera appearance that we reviewed last month. So none of this seems to be working. So I guess the next step is to take an apple and put it on Harpo's head and put bullets through it <laughs> until he talks, uh, which I guess is the ultimate torture. <laughs> uh, Never fails, that one. <laughs> So they actually put one bullet through the apple, and Harpo then grabs the apple and starts chomping on it. And in what is maybe the highlight of the film, he grabs a gun and holds it to his own head as if to say, I'm going to eat this apple, and if you stop me, I'm going to shoot myself, and you're never going to find out where these sardines are. Yeah, uh, this is kind of great. I, I mean, this really did make me laugh. And this is one of the moments where it feels a little more like the old Harpo, because he has yeah. such disregard for his own welfare here i mean (laughs) yeah his best stuff is when he changes the context of something and just totally confuses the hell out of everybody in the room (laughs) it's truly maniacal um and you do (laughs) want him to just stop shooting the gun at his head and i guess there's some debate about how many bullets are actually in the gun here it's maybe it's seven is that or maybe it's seven in the long (laughs) version and six in the Uh, anyhow they toss Harpo into a room where he finishes off the apple and he sees a phone and he goes to make a call this is actually an interesting premise and when Chico picks up on the other end you're thinking ooh this is this has got promise but uh I sort of wished here that they had done you know like a variation on the charade scene but just with the audio Harpo trying to communicate just with the audio but uh they don't go that route they just you know sort of get out of it quickly with Chico reading Harpo's mind, so it's not everything it, it could have been. Although they then do go on and do a charade scene later anyway, don't they? Which is yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, you can't help but think of Harpo on the phone in Duck Soup, um, honking various mm. horns. Um, but there it was used as a quick gag. You get, get to process how funny it is to imagine Harpo on the phone and what he would do on the phone. And then very wisely, we're out of it as soon as it stops being a hilarious idea. Now, when Chico gets off the phone, something totally unexpected happens. We get a really nice scene between him and uh, Lyons. Now, I think this is probably my favorite scene in the entire film. They start with some jokes and end up doing a duet on piano and violin, you know, and, and I, I think it's got a really nice vibe. Uh, there's some good music, uh, good interaction, you know, I, I really like this. Now, look, Mr. Lyons, I know you want to make a good impression, but the please don't play better than me. You know, when you watch the scene, keep an eye on the showgirls, uh, Watching Chico, he and them are giving each other nice glances. Uh, it's fun to watch. Um, I'd have to 
look this up, but I think in their entire career, this is, might be the longest solo scene that Chico has. I mean, a uh, scene that doesn't involve any of the other brothers. Um, I think it's his best solo sequence since I can't remember when. It's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a really nice little thing. I mean, it, it is something that he used to do on stage, so it's not something that he had to, to learn fresh. So he's very, very confident doing it. Um, I see in my, in my, my book here, I've, I've said that Simon Louvish points out that, uh, the germ of this routine had been in his act since 1911. So it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a real Chico standard. Um, and it, and yeah, it's great. It's very funny. It's nice. Um, and it's generous to him, which, which, uh, you know, the, the last few MGMs really had not been. Yeah, indeed. I agree. It's good stuff. And, uh, some of the material that's familiar from television appearances, the Jimmy Pizzicato stuff, um, comes off well here. Yeah. I'm afraid I got to disagree with Mr. Adamson on this one. Uh, Joe is not a fan of the scene, but I think, I think he's off base here. Yeah. What does he know? <laughs> But despite all this uh, fun they're having, uh, it's now apparent that the backer has backed out. So Lyons has all the uh, props and scenery and everything removed. So uh, Mr. Sourpuss, uh, Mike Johnson, gets up there and decides to cancel the show, despite the protests of the cast and crew who want to forge ahead. Uh, but no, he doesn't want to do that type of show. What a sap. <laughs> yes. Good luck next time. <laughs> I'm not doing one of those Thornton Wilder kind of plays. <laughs> so Mike retreats to his office with uh, Maggie and Bunny still pestering him about uh, continuing the show. He says no. And Maggie breaks down because it's her birthday. This is the worst birthday ever. And just when things look the worst, Madame Igalici shows up and apparently saves the day and prompts perhaps my favorite exchange of the entire film. What's going on? It's simple. Didn't you say life was a fairy tale? Well, here's our fairy godmother with a wand. And what a wand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The line is funnier if you've been smoking a rope. Yeah. Yeah. Although when you think about it, wouldn't it have made more sense if one of the girls had had said the line? Uh, I don't know. Anyhow, um, we then cut back to Harpo, who escapes from uh, his captivity by grabbing a couple of sheets off the bed and making a parachute and hopping out the window. And to run through all this real quickly, we see the uh, sardine can with the jewels ends up in the alley, uh, opened with the cat eating out of it. Um, Mike, I guess, now has to go discuss details on, on the transaction with Madame Igalici, who's now going to fund the show. And he leaves uh, Maggie on her birthday and... I think he's a real dick here because there's no reason he couldn't have brought Maggie along, but uh, whatever. And uh, finally, uh, Chico comes in and encounters Madame Miglici and immediately falls in love with her. I mean, he falls hard. I don't recall him falling for anybody like this, uh, perhaps maybe since uh, Thelma Todd in, in Horse Feathers. Yeah, this lovesick Chico. Is this the scene where he says he'll cover her in sardines? <laughs> yeah, what, a, yeah. what a lovely image <laughs> <Yeah>. that is. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little, maybe a vaguely a monkey business reference when Chico, she says she doesn't want the sardines he's brought her because it's actually a can of sardines. And he says, do you want anchovies, all these other th- canned fish that she might be interested in? And one of them is kippered herring. <laughs> and as Harpo is returning to the theater, he comes across the uh, jewels uh, sitting out there by the sardine can. Now he's going to give them to Maggie as a present, I guess. Uh and he stops outside her dressing room and pretties himself up. He pulls out a mirror and brushes his hair. And then he flips the mirror over. And we see the back of his head. 
Nice little mechanical gag there. Although in the uh, new longer version of the film, they do it twice, which is really overdoing it. The gag uh, comes across the first time. They don't need to repeat it. Yeah, that's a strong idea for a gag. It's executed fine from a technical point of view, and it continues the fun with mirrors that we've had in some previous Harpo gags. But yeah, it's so laborious. It's so ponderous. Maybe in the short version, it's not quite so much. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that, that Tashlin didn't direct as well as write, isn't it? He, he could have done a lot more with, with this stuff. I presume that's one of his gags, and uh, he, he, would have, he would have done it so much more uh, zippily. Oh, and that reminds me. I saw somewhere, boy, I can't remember where, um, very early in the conception of this film, uh, Leo McCary was being considered as director. Now, I don't know if it would have been a better film, but I have to imagine he would have nailed a lot of these physical gags. Anyhow, um, Harpo couldn't have timed this much better because Maggie is ready to give up on, on Mike and actually who could blame him? Uh, they end up out in Central Park. And here's where Vera Ellen gives her big Oscar bait speech about giving up uh, Mike and she's going to be a success and Harpo's going to be her manager and they're going to be rich and famous without him and they'll show him. And then, of course, she breaks down in hysterics like, oh, God, I, I love him so much. And Harpo's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Oh, he doesn't say that, but he implies it. And then he runs back into his shack there. It's where he lives. Presumably, that bit where she says, uh, you know, I'm going to be a big star and, and you can join me is when we would have had one of the most mysterious things that, that isn't in the film, which is what's described in the, in the contract as the dream sequence where Harpo dreams and thinks he is singing. So presumably, I, I, my guess is it, there would have been less kind of like a kind of a fantasy sequence at this point of the two of them on stage with, with mm -hmm. Harpo uh, imagining that he is singing. Maybe that was Cowan imagining he could get Harpo to talk in a film. Yes. <laughs> anyway, n never mind that, because in Harpo's hut, there is a little yeah. penguin that looks like Harpo and speaks in speeded-up human speech. We don't know that for a fact. We're guessing. It sounds like it, right? <laughs> it certainly does, yeah. You had me slow it down, backwards, sideways, <laughs> upside down, everything. We couldn't get head or tails out of this. We thing, got nothing, so. yeah. Sometimes a penguin is just a penguin. <laughs> I mean, in, in all fairness, I don't think I've ever actually heard a penguin. I've seen them. Uh, maybe they do make a ridiculous sound like that, but my guess is they probably don't. <laughs> so anyhow, he, he goes in and has to dig pretty deep under his crap to get to his harp. <laughs> He doesn't use it much anymore. <laughs> it's not something you need to keep close at hand like the penguin dressed <laughs> yeah. as you. So he drags the harp out to Maggie. Actually, you know what would have been a nice way to do this? If they would have had a close-up of Maggie crying and pull back and Harpo was just there with the harp, you know, like it just magically appeared. I think that would have been an imaginative way to uh, uh, present the same thing without seeing the, the dreck of Harpo's house. Anyhow, Harpo then plays... Uh, a nice, soothing version of Swanee River. You know, that old song by uh, uh, Ed Norton. <laughs> I'm getting some uh, blank stares here. Uh, <laughs> I guess you guys aren't Honeymooners fans. Well, anyhow, uh, it's a nice version. Uh, that song is also referenced in the song Four of the Three Musketeers. Ah, and Harpo actually recorded the song for one of his albums uh, a couple years later. Like I said, this was a nice scene. It, played out against the moonlight, uh, 
which is actually a beautiful setting for one of Harpo's uh, solos. Uh, however, when the song is over, Maggie is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> she She's ditched them. She, she took off. Yeah, well, she got her diamonds. <laughs> and in case we've forgotten, there's actually another Marx brother by the name of uh, Groucho. Uh, we're back in uh, his office. And he has an assistant. Yeah, Ma- Mackinaw. Mackinaw, who says, Aloy! <laughs> 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 no, I'm assuming his part was a lot bigger when they actually uh, shot the film. Yes, yeah, when, when all of Groucho's uh, final appearances t- all took place in that office, I imagine we got a lot more of, of a character who is, after all, played by Eric Bloor, who is not nobody. Yeah. Uh, but here, all, all we do is we see uh, smoke come out of his pipe, and we hear him say, Hello! <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for Eric, yeah. So Groucho is getting ready to attend the uh, opening night performance of the, of the play. Maganoa? You now have a full record of the case, and tonight at the opening of the play, you may have the solution. For when the curtain rises, Madame Igalici will be in the front box, and sitting next to her will be Count Bulabase. But if you take away the Count's silk hat, his opera cloak, and his full dress suit, you'll have me shivering in my underwear. Hanoi! And just as he's about to leave, in comes another thug. Here's one we haven't seen before. And apparently he's one of the uh, Romanoffs who have paid Sam a hefty fee to recover the diamonds. And this guy promptly gives Groucho one hour to uh, produce the diamonds, uh, although he can't leave the office. So <laughs> I don't know how he's going to produce the diamonds that way. Uh, and since <laughs> this is before smartwatches, the only way to measure an hour is, of course, to have an hourglass and turn it over. <laughs> and uh, as soon as the sand runs out, uh, Groucho is going to be dead. So Groucho repurposes some sand when the guy's not watching and pours it back into the top of the hourglass. I think that's a decent gag. Throwing a little extra sand in the hourglass, like to buy himself another f- twelve seconds of life—that's yeah. <laughs> that's pretty strong. I actually think it would have been a nice touch if he had uh, flicked his cigar ashes in there as well to add another, you know, moment or two. But uh, anyhow, there's a, a knock on the door, and in comes a, a sultry blonde. I've looked it up, and this blonde, uh, Norma Jean Baker, uh, went on to. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, movie career. Uh, she died in her mid-30s, but, uh, you know, I don't, we don't need to get into that. Um, and I think it's a nice little scene, you know, reminiscent of his uh, moments with Thelma Todd. It's good stuff. Yes. What? Am I missing something here? <laughs> okay. You want to do this? All right. Okay. It was Marilyn Monroe. We all know this, but uh, I'm not going to glorify this lady because she has as much screen time and as many lines as the fucking manicurist. So I'm not going to put this lady on a pedestal and go, oh, my God, she makes the film because, you know, this manicurist has been forgotten by history. And Marilyn Monroe is this, you know, bleach blonde who basically slept with everybody in the business to get where she got. So I'm not going to give her any accolades here. (laughs) No, actually, I'll get I'll get serious here. You know, Marilyn worked on the film for four days, which uh, seems to suggest she did more than just uh, this one scene, although. I could see the producers and maybe Chico asking to keep her around as long as possible. Yes. That's that four days does suggest that they, uh, there was something besides her, her on screen role. Yeah. I mean, it is odd that she's so underused, isn't it? Because, uh, 
uh, as we know, you know, she was separately employed to promote the movie, to go on on promotional tours. Uh, we know that she was separately employed to pose for those uh, Flipper Vision uh, flip flip books with uh, with Harper and Chico. And there are also um, shots of her on the set when um, Groucho is is uh, in that funnel tunnel thing on on the rooftop mm. so you know they could have right. they could have had a running about there as well I'm, I'm i've no idea why they didn't it's it's hard to tell a little bit why i mean there's something about her entrance here and the very brief scene she has with groucho I don't know if it's that she does inherently have this charisma and star quality, which is a part of what made her a star, and she's just kind of watchable on the screen, or if it's because you watch the scene with all the knowledge of her later career and 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 life and all the various comedies and tragedies we associate with her. But I think her appearance here does have genuine impact, and you know, I kind of woke up when she walked on the screen, and not for the reasons you might think. I actually have a little clip here of uh, Groucho on the Today Show talking about uh, working with Marilyn. We did one picture in which she had a bit. She got $100 for one day's work. You can imagine how long ago this was. And uh, Lester Cowan, who was producing the picture, he called me up because I was going to do the scene with Marilyn. He called me up and he said, we should come over to the studio tomorrow to my office because we're going to try out three girls for the part. In, the, in this picture. I think it was called Love Happy or something. Terrible picture. So uh, I sat there with Lester and the three girls were there. I was introduced to them. And he says, now the first girl walk. And she walked across from one and the other. He says, very nice. He says, now the second girl walk. And she did it too. And then he, the third one. He says, now you walk across. And he says, well, which one uh, do you like the best? I says, you're kidding, aren't you? How can you take anybody except that last girl? Well, the whole room revolved when she walked. And it was Marilyn Monroe. And she got $100. And then we quit shooting at 5. And she got $25 extra for going to a couple of gas stations. They were plugging some kind of gas or something, which was part of the picture or something. And she got $25 extra for They took snapshots of her from 6 to 8 o'clock. She's a wonderful girl, really. She's a very nice girl. I think it was called Love Happy or something. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible picture. She actually, um, <laughs> she got $100 a week for five weeks to, to promote the film. So uh, not, not $25. Yeah, there are actually some uh, news clippings of her in, uh, I think, Rockford, Illinois, uh, promoting the film. She's uh, in the lobby signing autographs and uh, parading around the theater. With uh, somebody dressed as Harpo, maybe, or something mm. like that. Yeah. I can't believe they didn't have these three actresses read. I mean, all they had to do was walk across the room. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Lester Cowan. <laughs> At least have them read, just to, just so it looks good, you know. Yeah. Also, she does deliver the lines well, mm. you know, some men are following me. It's a good setup, you know, uh, for Groucho's punchline that you can see coming, but... Uh, you know that is a, a part part of her appeal too. She was she had comic skills. Yeah, if you didn't know the chronology, you could easily believe that it was uh, an in joke cameo, couldn't you? That she was already famous. She just she walks in mm, yeah. like she's famous. And as we all know, this film has been 
re-released and repackaged over the years with Marilyn's name right up there with the Marx Brothers and, uh, you know, promoted as the film that discovered Marilyn Monroe, which I guess might be true. Although it technically wasn't her first film. She did have a couple of uh, small appearances before this. So don't let anybody tell you that this was uh, her very first film. Also, if you want uh, some further insight as to Groucho's uh, thoughts about the film in here, you might want to check out the Marx Brothers scrapbook. But uh, make sure the kitties aren't around if you know what I mean. Okay, so back at the theater, uh, Maggie's getting ready for the show, and she puts on the necklace that Harpo gave her as part of her costume. And there's a little window or gate or something because Thockmorton and the two thugs look in there and they see her with the necklace. Now, isn't it strange that people can <laughs> see into her dressing room? Do we, do we dare to hope that this necklace has been at least rinsed since it came <laughs> yeah. out of that can of fish? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, the cat licked it clean. Yeah, yeah cat licked it, yeah. <laughs> oh, we can say that for this movie. I, I'm glad that they didn't make us think they were going to cut open that mm, cat. They took x-rays. They, they, <laughs> they could have kept that going for a long time, and they did not. Well, wait a minute. I, you must be referring to the scene where Throckmorton shows Madame Iglici the, the x-ray of the cat. Well, I'm here to tell you that that scene was not in the, oh. you know, the normal length cut of the film, which was the uh-huh. only one seen for decades. So we were left to believe that maybe they did cut the cat open. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Mike and Maggie uh, then make up. And while they're kissing, the jewels end up in a piano, which I guess is now part of the show. Uh, Chico is going to play a number, uh, but we'll get to that. This is some show, isn't it? I'd love to see exactly what the running order is for this thing, you know. <laughs> and now we cut to some guy playing the piano. <laughs> So after Mike leaves, uh, the thugs break into Maggie's dressing room and demand the jewels, and she doesn't know where they are, and they're threatening her harm, and Harpo overhears this and goes running for Chico, and we get our inevitable uh, charade scene. I don't know. It's fine. It's good enough. You know, I'm just glad to have two Marxes on the screen at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's better than more Mike and Maggie. It's, it's... I can't say that I enjoy these charade scenes very much. I mean, the the, the seminal version in Day at the Races has a certain novelty appeal to it. For me, the it's funniest in Night in Casablanca because it's followed by the bit where Harpo has to repeat the same message to Groucho, mm-hmm. which adds a level to it, you know, after the fact. But I don't know. There's so much shrill whistling from Harpo. Um, yeah. It's one of those rare times when you just want to grab Harpo and say, just say it, just talk. We know you can talk. <laughs> So they run back to Maggie's dressing room and they overhear the thugs telling her that if she doesn't come up with the jewels, that it's going to be curtains for her. And um, uh, Harpo and Chico look at each other and then they check out the showgirls walking by and they see some, you know, phony costume jewelry on the on the butt of one of the showgirls. And they nod at each other and they go running after her. And, you know, for a moment, the first time I saw this, I didn't know exactly what was going on. I thought uh, Harpo and Chico were abandoning the plot and just going after the showgirl. But... Uh, I guess that's too much to ask uh, in this film. <laughs> now, this is this moment with those three showgirls. I, I think, and maybe a listener can can affirm or contradict what I'm saying, but as far as I can tell, this can only be a deliberate reference to I'll Say She Is. The lines that the showgirls have as they walk by are perfume from Hindustan, pearls from Arabia, diamonds from Africa. 
this is from the inception of Drapery, which was a scene in I'll Say She Is in which Beauty, the ingenue, is presented with all these gifts from around the world that are supposed to thrill her. Uh, Harpo in his autobiography remembers that the next group of dancers who had to follow the inception of drapery would always complain about all the beads left on the stage from the Hindustan bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, searching on these phrases just doesn't find them anywhere else. Um, And so I think this must have been a winking quote from, I'll say she is, I don't know if if we can, maybe Ben Hecht had something to do with that Mm -hmm. or not. But that's what seems to be happening here. Can you remind me of that when I work start work on the second edition of the Annotated, please? Because that's gladly that's yes. really really good. I did not know that. In in my book, I express some lack of clarity about whether this is a reference to I'll say she is, or just a reference to a larger cliche that I'll say she is is also participating in. Mm. Uh, but I couldn't find any other examples of the phrase perfume from Hindustan. And bearing in mind the, 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 the Moss Kaufman thing, it, 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 you know, it, th- there is that mindset at work here. So, yeah. Yeah. And of course, this leads us all to our uh, rooftop chase finale. Um, yeah. I don't have a lot of notes here. You know, there's a, there's a lot of gags here. Some are pretty good. Some are not. Yeah. It's not bad. It's certainly better than, uh, at least for me, the big store finale or even uh, Nine Casablanca. It should be a lot tighter. It's it's it, although it's probably the you know the most inventively funny bit. It's also the bit that shows up the most that this is a a kind of a second tier piece of work. It, it's just not it's not handled with enough professional um, energy. The editing and and the framing and and all that stuff um, betrays betrays its its lowly uh, lowly origins. But it's you know it's a it's a good uh pretty funny thing there are some nice some nice uh gags like Harper going up on the horse although you can you can see his foot where you're not meant to if you if you play it very very slowly if this wasn't the original scripted finale w- what was I, that i don't know other than that that uh, Groucho and Igalichi and uh, and Harper and that all all met up in his office so i i think it would right. have just been a very very tame uh just getting them all together in his office ending um this yeah this d- did come late in the day it was it was Tashlin's idea uh not not Cowan's but Cowan uh wanted to do it because he wanted a, a a more elaborate ending he wrote a letter to Gradwell Sears UA's vice president in charge of distribution saying uh, do you want do you want to have a red river or do you want a Joel McCrea western um so he wanted he wanted another 100,000 to finish the job uh, and as we know um he he didn't get that so so he went to advertisers and and um quite innovatively for the time real advertising slogans were used and this is often uh, cited as a as a, a a negative thing um but actually i i think if, if audiences are familiar with the with the logos if they're genuine logos that's actually funnier for them than if they were were, were made up ones so actually i think that i think that was pretty good i think that's, that's a pretty good marriage of art and commerce yeah apparently the anger from the theater managers was was unbelievable but I really don't understand what the issue was. I mean, it's not like it was going to hurt their business. Yeah, I think it was just just seen as a bit cheapskate, you know, a bit kind of advertising how how little money you have. Um, but I, I think it makes the jokes work better. The idea of selling advertising space in a movie is so 
commonplace now. It's hard to get mm. into a mindset that that would be upset by that if it's done in a contextually appropriate way, which it is. And, you know, I mean, a rooftop scene with the Marx Brothers uh, cavorting uh, above Times Square um, should be right up my alley, certainly. And, you know, if you're inclined, as I am, to to think of Times Square as a romantic fantasy location, you've long since reconciled yourself with the idea that Times Square itself is largely a series of enormous advertisements uh, screaming at you. So... It's hard to have a problem with that. I just, and there are some beautiful individual shots and, and moments here. And the gag with the mobile horse is, that is, you know, clever and, and comes off well. You just, uh, you know, you just wish it were, as you say, Matthew, tighter. And if the individual gags were better, if Groucho and Chico didn't seem so extraneous yeah i mean obviously part of the problem again is that they weren't all there at the same time so so groucho's bits in particular are very very self-contained and there's there's nothing for him to do so he he does kind of make a tit of himself just sort of going into doors and coming out again and pulling faces and that because there's no way of of integrating him in you know it's never quite explained how groucho got out of his office you know away from that romanoff Mm. guy Perhaps he parachuted out of the window. (laughs) (laughs) And he left uh, Mackinac there to uh, fend for himself. (laughs) Yes, after the credits, there should be a shot of Eric Bloor lying in a pool of blood. (laughs) So there's less than five minutes left in the film when Groucho and Harpo appear on screen together for the first time. Yeah, it's such a shame that Chico's not there. Yeah, I guess Chico left the country. Uh, He had some commitments and he wasn't there while most of the stuff... uh, with Groucho on the uh, rooftop was shot. So there was no real chance to get them together. And even the ending in Groucho's office uh, was piecemealed together. Oh, yeah, there is one gag I wanted to bring up uh, from the rooftop. And that's the one that is sort of like a remake of the famous gag from uh, At the Circus, where they talk about the censor. Mm. You know, I don't want to give it away, but I actually think it's better done here. You know, it's more of an aside. It's, it seems more spontaneous. I like it better here than, than the original. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And since this film is such a showcase for Harpo, I don't understand why he didn't get the final shot. You know, that one with him walking off with the jewels, tossing them in there, dancing away. That would have been a beautiful way to end the film. There, there was no reason to go back to Groucho's office. Yeah, I think if Chico had been on that on the roof as well with them, it, it might might well have done. But uh, because as there was no opportunity to bring the three together, I think uh, it was sort of felt that, well, we better tie up the Chico story as well. So the obvious way to do that would be to have him working for, for Groucho. So, so it looks like Groucho has fired Mackinaw and replaced him, <laughs> replaced him with Faustino the Great. Now, I don't think he was fired. I remember, as Noah said, he was killed helping uh, Groucho escape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, for the amount of time Mackinaw is there, as I always say, why didn't they get Zeppo? <laughs> Bob Grunion. <laughs> and uh, in our epilogue, we learned that Groucho has married Madame Igalici. And actually, the reason I mentioned this is because there were reports that Groucho and Massey were going to continue on in further films for uh, uh, Cowan. And I'm wondering if they were going to still continue being these characters. I think they were They were going to be comedy detective films, weren't they? So, so right. it, it could well be, yeah. There are my notes for Love Happy. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we also I, we also should just um, make more of a, a point which you you did mention, Bob. But the, the what appears to be Groucho and Chico together at the end um, is is two two separate shoots uh, combined, uh, which is why you never actually see them together. And the oddest, I think, of all the cuts uh is the in the in the the long version is missing uh mm. the shot of chico taking his coat off after he loses the game of cards to the dog uh mm. i i can't make sense of that at all but that that is only in the short version i i'm almost inclined to think it's an editing mistake or something i can't think of any reason why they would have wanted to remove that uh but you need you need to go to the short one if you want to see that and i and who wouldn't and we could say that the failure to get the three brothers on screen together at any point in this film makes it a slightly less authentic Marx Brothers movie than The Incredible Jewel Robbery. Mm. Right. But right. again, you know, there, there might have perhaps, um, they might have met up in the, the, the version of the ending before the, they, they shot the roof chase. So they might have all three been in, been in Groucho's office. Um, and then the, the roof chase necessitated uh mixing things around there's a lot of doubling for chico in the roof chase as well i don't think he was there much he's he's obviously there for the bit where where his hat has an erection and he's there um i think there's a there's a couple of other moments but there's quite a few bits where he's looking away or his hat is in front of his face and and so on so i think a lot of a lot of the time on the roof he's doubled i can't help thinking of taking a wide view of the plot the confusion between the real diamonds and the fake diamonds, you know, it, it's a little bit like Animal Crackers where there's the, you know, real and fake paintings flying through the story. And yet where in Animal Crackers, we got just the amount of that that we absolutely needed to justify the comedy. This kind of is actually a caper about some stolen diamonds. Mm. So why don't you guys tell me what your history is with Love Happy, you know, when you first saw it and, what what your initial reaction was i first saw it very very early on um when um as i've said probably about 400 times through the course of these podcasts i i saw um my first five films uh all within a few days of each other over christmas in 1983 which was the the paramounts minus coconuts and a night in casablanca Mm. that was all uh, christmas 1983 and then very very early in 1984 uh, on a Saturday morning, they showed Love Happy on, on BBC One, on the the main channel. And I can still remember the continuity mm. announcement, which was, and now, one of the more famous of the Marx Brothers' later films. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. One of, one of the more <laughs> famous of their later films. So I, so I you know, I settled down to, to enjoy it. And uh, uh, yeah, and, and I got Love Happy. And um, I think, I think I'm right in saying that I was so cross with it that I didn't even keep my my little audio recording of it so the next time <laughs> the next time i saw it was in 1986 when it first came out on video over here um by which time i knew what i knew what i was getting and i had i had animal crackers on a on a videotape and i added that one to my collection well i it was the last marx brothers movie that i saw or the last one that i saw for the first time i think i was 17 or 18 by the time I, I got my hands on a VHS Love Happy. Um, so this would have been in the mid nineties. Um, it was sort of an afterthought. I knew that it, I mean, I knew all about it by the time I saw it. And I, it was more out of a desire for completing 
my viewing of the films than anything else. Um, it's the only Marx Brothers movie I've never owned a copy of in any physical media mm-hmm. form. And in preparation for this podcast, I watched it twice, and those were my third and fourth viewings of it all time. I've only seen the movie four times. Um, I guess it would be foolish to assume that I'll never watch it again, <laughs> but I, I would say, uh, you know, of the certainly of the 13 films, it has the least to offer um, someone who's interested in the Marx Brothers. I think, Bob, you've made the point before that it, it kind of sits on the shelf with room service as a movie that maybe it's not even quite fair to compare it with the rest of the Marx Brothers movies. The intention was not to make a Marx Brothers movie here. Um, although, if you're going to make that comparison, I can't help but think how much better room service is than this. Yeah, I have to say with, with some degree of sadness that I enjoyed it less this time than at any time in the past. And my position on it has always been that it's a, it's a, it's a film with almost literally nothing to offer. But for some reason, it's never a chore to watch. It never actually bores me. Uh, this time it, it sort of did a bit. I mean, I guess there's something about even, even the worst of the other Marx Brothers films you know, they're, they, they're still Marx Brothers films. And I mean, I, I can find things in Go West and at the circus and the big store that that are reminders of better days or where at least the talent and sometimes even the love among the three guys, you know, elevates the experience, makes it indispensable, makes it undeniably canonical, even if it's not the strongest stuff. Here, I don't know. I come away from this movie with the feeling that there are really only 12 Marx Brothers movies and not 13. Yeah, I agree with all that. But that being said, I have to say, it's not a bad film. I mean, I'd much rather watch this than... Uh, Jaws. <laughs> well, Jaws 2. But I've seen Jaws 2. i just never seen the original Jaws before. <laughs> but uh, I think I'd rather watch Love Happy than... Hold on your hats here. I'd rather watch this than like any Bob Hope film. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I feel, you know. Or or any of the uh, Bud Abbott uh, solo films. So, yeah, it's obviously not what it could have been. I'm not sure uh, David Miller, the director, really uh, knocked it out of the park. You know, there are, there's a skeleton of a much better film here, but uh, we don't get it. Uh, so we just have to appreciate what it is. And I think every Marx Brothers fan should absolutely uh, watch this, you know, at least once. There are, as they say, a handful of priceless moments. Yeah. So... Why not spend some time with uh, Harpo Marx and, you know, his brothers, uh, Chico and the other guy. <laughs> so we are done talking about Love Happy. <laughs> uh, join us next time. Oh, no, no. I don't know if anybody's going to join us after this one. So this <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to name this our least uh, downloaded podcast? <laughs> Other people will do that for us. <laughs> okay. Hey, everybody, we'll be back uh, next time. We, we have a much better uh, and interesting podcast plan, something very unusual. But in the meantime, I think the three of us should go out by spitting on Lester Cowan. Uh, Noah, you want to take us out by spitting? I hate you, Lester Cowan. I spit on you. <laughs> Matthew? <laughs> You hit me. (laughs) 
David. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is hosted by Matthew Conium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! Thank you.